According to Sarah Critchfield, most managers want their employees to be curious and experimental, to take the initiative and develop new products and solutions. But as it turns out, managers also like to micromanage and control outcomes through safe, predictable processes. As a result, managers end up stifling the very experimentation they want to foster. Sarah is joining us today to share her experience as one of the founding editorial directors at Upworthy and how taking risks led them from zero to 50 million visitors and 8 million subscribers in just two years. In 2013, Fast Company named it one of the fastest growing media sites of all time. She is currently the vice president of global outreach for Fetzer Institute. Joe Folkman and I are excited to welcome her on the podcast today. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, Sarah, we are preparing for our upcoming webinar on taking risks. And as I was researching and looking for some best practices out there, I came across your article you wrote in 2017 for Harvard Business Review. And it was so fantastic about the real application of taking risks and what you did over at Upworthy. So we're going to focus on some of that advice that you gave in our conversation today. But to start, I want to understand a little bit more about you. Have you always been someone who embraces taking risks and not playing it safe? Yeah, thanks. So I actually would like to start by moving away from the idea that risk or experiment is a binary quality. Like you either are, you aren't, you have it, you don't. Mm. And I want to move us into a paradigm that looks at risk and stability, not as opposites, but as completely interdependent on each other. Mm. So yes, I am naturally curious and experimental and I have always taken risks and I have always needed stability to exercise those qualities. So let me give you, I'll give you an example. Um, when the founders asked me to come start Upworthy with them, I said no. <laughs> and the reason I said no is because I was already at a job I loved and 90% of startups fail. Yeah. Right? So there, mm-hmm. um, but they kept kind of upping the ante. And so eventually I called Anna Gallant, who was the executive director at MoveOn, where we, were, where we were at the time. And I said, Anna, I love my job and I'm so scared. I'm so scared of leaving and taking this risk because... When, not if, when Upworthy <laughs> fails, I'll wish I had stayed here. And God bless this woman. She said to me, if it doesn't work out, your job will be waiting for you. Oh, wow. And that's what I needed to take the leap. And so I don't think I, I was able to do at Upworthy um, everything just because I'm a natural risk taker. I took that leap because Anna Gallon was gracious enough to provide me the stability I needed to, to, to make a calculated risk choice. So if you look deep enough and long enough, you'll you'll see risk is usually tied to stability somewhere. They're they're two sides of the same coin. Hmm. That's a great example. It is a great example. And, and I, you know, I think that, that bringing that out is, is going to be critical here. Uh, As you know, we do leadership development at Zinger Folkman and taking risks ends up being one of 19 differentiating competencies. Uh, we call it differentiating because it sort of stands out <laughs> and and it's kind of unusual. It's something that not everybody does and some people shy away from it. So we'd like to understand how leaders embrace taking risks mentally. Uh, in your article, you describe people needed to shift from a static best practices mentality to a dynamic laboratory mentality. 
we're all surrounded by pressures uh, to use acceptable industry practices. What made you want to take risks and step away from sort of best practices? Here's the right way. It's one way. It's this way. What made you do that? Data. (laughs) It wasn't just a thought that occurred to me, but we were seeing in the data that whenever we leaned on best practices, we were less successful than when we were experimenting and innovating. Um, That makes a lot of sense in my industry. Digital media moves very fast. It's tied to tech. It's very dynamic. You may be in an industry that moves a little slower and you have more breathing room. But the conclusion that we needed an experimental system was very easy to figure out. But figuring out how that system would, would work was the hard part. So I am a very, very risk adverse person. I really like rules. I don't like stepping into the unknown. I love what you said about stability within risk. I think that's really great. But what I thought was interesting was the guidelines that you established to kind of create stability for these teams at Upworthy. So let's discuss the four things managers can do that can help people to take risks. First, you said they need to foster divergent thinking. And divergent thinking is different from creative thinking. It's not the ability to come up with an original idea, but you said it's the ability to come up with lots of different answers to the same question. So can you explain more about how teams and individuals can practice divergent thinking and how it can help with taking risks? Yeah, so divergent thinking is one of the biggest and best capacities, in my opinion, um, you can develop to support experimentation. This is an innate quality in all of us. Kindergartners test at genius levels of divergent thinking, mm-hmm. but it's believed that our schooling strips it out, right? Because in school, it's there's one right answer. And if you get the right answer, you get an A. And then we have formation in this kind of thinking for decades, decades. We form people to think like this. Um, And you get out into the real world and it's like, oh, actually, kid, there's lots of ways we could build a business. There's lots of ways to run a team meeting, you know, and solve the world's biggest problems. So some of this divergent thinking comes down to attempting to rewire our brains a little bit. And being experimental is a grind, right? And so you actually need a a regular practice to support it. It's a lot like working out. You don't just sort of get muscle tone and then say, oh, well, I'm toned now. I'm good. I guess I don't have to ever come to back to the gym again. It's this, it's a lifetime thing. It's a constant practice. At Upworthy, our divergent practice was to write 25 headlines for every story. Wow. That's, pretty simple. That's a lot. <laughs> 25? <laughs> oh, yeah. And when my trainers were in, uh, when my writers were in training, we would, I would push them. I'd say, I'd say, well, this is good, but try 50. Come back to me with 100. We would push it hard. Um, and they would say, but I can't. <laughs> and I would say, but you can. Go back. Take a crap. So, um, for, you know, it can take other forms, you know, it could be, let's go into the staff lounge and think about eight different ways to rearrange the furniture for better collaboration. Mm-hmm. It could be like, let's get 200 ideas on the table in this brainstorm to make this item easier to purchase on the website, whatever. It doesn't really matter how you practice it, just that it's a regular practice in that you're enculturating it. You're, you're rewiring your brains together as a team. You you said in the article, all team members must be able to test their own cockamamie ideas and see the results. <laughs> I love that cockamamie uh, kind of term. Uh, so how did that work? How did they do their own tests? Was it an A-B test kind of thing? Well, first, I'm thinking that cockamamie wasn't a risk I should have taken. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure about that one. 
Yes. So I think, you know, this one, every team member, including the manager, testing and getting real-time feedback of their tests goes back to the idea of rewiring how we've been educated, right? I really believe we humans don't learn by reading information. We learn by doing. You have to understand something in your head, but also in your body, in your heart. So at Upworthy, we we flip things around. The tests were the production expectations, Mm. right? In media, you know, 90% of the time resources are put into the content creation. And then there's like, little over like 2% left in the packaging. And so we just flipped it and we made it more like 50-50. So we did make the time because this kind of question about making time for this, letting them, how do you justify letting people spend so much time on experimenting? I guess all I can say is, is it worth taking the risk of letting your team not become more and more innovative, not sharpen their thinking skills, not be best in their market, in their class? So um, and, you know, if if testing and experimenting doesn't produce good business results, then I would say don't do it. Yeah. Right. Like we're all just <laughs> trying to find what works. But really, any system that allows a team member to try out several ideas and then receive feedback from those ideas works like it doesn't have to be fancy, but it does have to be built into the culture. And so I was kind of thinking about an exa- I can give an example of maybe what that might look like for a manager listening So let's say you're trying to optimize your team meeting. It's a low stakes internal kind of example. So here's what enculturating the experimental approach might look like. So you're going to isolate the goal, let's say more efficient team meeting, and you draft 30 ways to accomplish that. And if that feels really hard, give yourself prompts. So say like, what if the team meeting was built around the idea of fun? What if it was built around problem solving? What if it was 15 minutes long? What if it was two hours long? You know, you give yourself prompts to start thinking about 30 different ways that you could run a team meeting. Pick four, try one agenda per week for four weeks, survey the team after each meeting. So you're sort of like setting up an experiment and a system for feedback. And then um, look at the results with your team. And, And this is what's really important. Okay. How the manager looks at the results sets the tone. This is how you normalize failure. This is how you normalize experimentation. The manager is not going to say, oh, we nailed it in week three. <laughs> Let's do that one. No, the manager is going to say in front of the team, whoa, that second week totally bombed. And then the manager is going to laugh. Okay. Because it's not a big deal. It's just part of the very normal, very healthy, very culturally accepted process of optimizing our work and getting to better results. So the manager is showing, not telling, showing, not telling in real time. Mm -hmm. Experimentation is allowed. Failure is helpful and it's worth your time. And that's what we do here. Mm, Beautiful example. Great advice. The line that stood out in that section of the article for me was you said, team members can't take responsibility for what they can't understand. And I think if you're going to empower people, then you have them do the tests. You have them see that the experiment worked or it didn't. That third suggestion, which you you mentioned a little bit that we're going to talk a little bit more about, was normalizing failure. You suggest managers should set a baseline failure rate and success rate and measure your team's work by that baseline. Most people in the world, I believe, <laughs> have a pretty big fear of failure. That's why people like to stay in the safe zone, stay with the best practices, you know, not 
trek out in the unknown. So what did your organization and managers do to help normalize failure and encourage teams not to play it safe? Yeah. Yeah. And what I would say is, Brian, you are the normal one. You're not the <laughs> exception. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, everyone's like you, right? Like this is a really important point because human beings have evolved to link survival to conformity, mm. right? Yeah. Staying with the tribe in the tribe can be the difference between life or death. So you want to work with the biology instead of against it. Mm. And in order to do that, you have to make experimentation kind of appear like it's conformity. So there's a, like we're body hacking ah, here a little bit. This mm-hmm. is we're, we're hacking into our, our biology. We're not, um, we're not just asking people to do things that make them incredibly anxious and then expecting them to be so, so strong-willed they, they can overcome their own biology. So the trick is to provide the pathway to experimentation that makes experimenting be part of being in the tribe instead of being out of the tribe. Mm. Sometimes you can't create this in your sector. You still got this feeling like, oh, I'm not using industry best practices, but you, you know, you can control what's in your organization. So first thing we talked about the leadership example before the leaders got to say, you've got stability with me. It's safe to explore. Second thing at Upworthy, we rigged up a really simple reporting system that just kind of ranked everybody's posts. And I was looking to see that on average, about 95% of their work was what we would, we would call it a dud. We didn't call it a fail because that was <laughs> kind of harsh. We just called it a dud. It's, it's still very personal to feel like you're getting duds. And so I always had those conversations in one-on-one meetings because at that point, you're just sort of doing personal reassurance. You're cheerleading. So... In those one-on-one meetings, I would just say, hey, look, this is my expectation. I am going to hold you accountable to this. Like, we are going to have a conversation if you're not experimenting enough. Mm. Okay? You lose 100% of the chances you don't take. Um, That's one thing. Second thing, everybody else is doing it. Okay? So this is where you hack the biology. Your dud rate is less than the other writers. So here you're signaling that they're actually out of step with the tribe because of their lack of experimentation. Mm. And that <clears throat> hacks the biology. They want to conform. So they want to experiment more so they can fit in. It's, it's really ironic that to get your team to be out of the box, you have to like create a new box that they can sit in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's what's worked for me, you know, and you just got to be there as a manager to keep reminding your team members of that, keep reassuring, like, this is how the tribe here does things. This piece takes consistency over time because people keep falling back into the status quo. You know, you crave it. It's a resting space. It's safe. People crave safety. So it takes some keeping up. Yeah. I I love the, the idea that everybody had duds, (laughs) right? (laughs) I mean, nobody's perfect on this, right? And and, uh, so some people had more duds than others, but everybody had a dud occasionally. The final thing you suggested is that testing should not lead to creating best practices, that that you ought to sort of think about best practices as problematic. And, and, and so let's, let's have a culture where we continually test, 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 and, and find new ways to do things. That, uh, that made me tired. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but it seems like it was just a culture where you said, we're just going to look at everything that we do and find better ways to do it. 
Yeah, I I love that that made you tired. I can see <laughs> I can see how that feels exhaustive. It's less exhaustive if you're in a culture that supports it and you'd fall into a rhythm there in the culture, but I guess it's just the it comes down to the basic way you look at data. And I've always looked at data as less useful for getting answers and more useful for asking better questions. So it's like, what else are we missing? What more can we test? Can we dig deeper into this thing? You can make it fun and energizing instead of exhausting. I just think continual optimization has to do with a continual process that supports it of looking at data as that invitation to ask better questions. It's like an ongoing dialogue with your customers or stakeholders, right? And so if you think of it as an ongoing dialogue with the people that I'm serving, it might feel a little less exhausting than something you're sort of trying to push yourself into doing. But as a, as a kind of a philosophy of life, it's it sort of suggests, hey, uh, you're always going to be learning. You're always going to be growing. There's always a better way, right? And and that's that's a great that's a great way to think about things. I mean, we all get into a rhythm of saying, "Oh, this is the way I do it," and and uh, you know, it may not be the best way. So, uh, Sarah, we I, we just did some research on um, risk taking, and we what's great is we have three hundred and sixty data assessments by peers, direct reports, and others on a person's effectiveness. And so we looked at risk-taking, and here's what we found. First, when we compared males and females on risk-taking, <laughs> this, this probably won't surprise you, uh, males are rated significantly higher than females. Now, the difference isn't huge, but it is statistically significant. Risk-taking is one of the three where women are rated uh, as less effective, but... When we looked at women in the top quartile, what we found is that 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 if a woman was a risk taker and they're in the and they were pretty good at it, it really made them stand out. They were significantly better on eight additional competencies. Does that surprise you? And in your experience, how does that data does that data fit, or would you say no? That's not my experience at all. Well, I think this is a difficult issue to look at in isolation. So I want to zoom out again a little bit and just say, um, you know, very few people in our society are jumping off a cliff mm -hmm. without being pretty darn sure that they're strapped into a parachute that's going to work, right? right? That's going to open. Mm -hmm. So again, risk is always tied to the risk calculation. They're interconnected. I think women failing to take risks as much as men is less of a character thing and more of a cumulative effect of kind of the social, economic, cultural, political position women are in, right? right? Um, people who buck the status quo pay a cost mm -hmm. and it's higher for women, full stop, it's higher for women. Right. We have a lot of research that's shown that women get penalized more than their male counterparts for experimenting and failing. They get perceived differently. Their, their competence comes into question more than their male counterparts. Um, so it actually may not be that women are struggling to take risks, but it might be that they're calculating risks differently. And I might say accurately, right? Like you would expect a reasonable person to do things with high cost less often than those doing things with low cost, right? Right. 
On the other hand, we have some data that comes in that um, is concerning that kind of indicates men may be falling behind women in risk calculation and that there's some real financial costs. So, for example, um, this is kind of coming in from a lot of different sectors, but men have less accurate risk calculation than women as drivers. And it now costs more to insure yourself as a male driver than if you're a female driver. Financial services sector, women are outperforming men on individual performance, individual portfolios, right? And so these are all areas where risk calculation is really important and men are falling behind. And so if we want to offer societal level interventions or think think through like that sort of a thing, I think we've really got to look at both ends of the spectrum, right? Both ends of the gender spectrum, both ends of the risk, risk calculation spectrum. Just to go back to the female ends of things, helping women take more risk means that we've got to change that risk calculation for them in society. In the meantime, my advice to women would just be this, like, keep up the good work, ladies. <laughs> you are reading the room accurately. You are making smart calculations. The data proves it. And I mean, just speaking from a very personal place, I would say don't feel pressure to take risks when the cost is too high to you because those costs leave scars and only you know what's right for you. So follow your gut and then let's all keep working towards a more equitable world because Absolutely. we know it's good for business. It's good for kids. It's good for all of us. Yes. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for this incredible advice and your experience. Are there any other lessons about risk taking that you've continued to use in your career and any more advice that you would give to managers looking to develop this important skill? I, don't, I have less advice and more thoughts. I like <laughs> so it. I would say, remember just how incredibly risky and, and reckless maintaining the status quo can be. It's reckless. And this is a tricky one because you don't look reckless. You look perfectly safe and smart and stable. <laughs> it's, it's a real tension. It's a paradox. I understand it's really hard. To, you don't want to lose the ground you've gained, right? But in, in clinging to those past successes, you may be putting your organization in a very vulnerable position because you could go out of business and it might not be this year and it might not be next year, but eventually, you know, I just climate change is destroying our homes. Your company is going to face competitive disruption. Kids are dying and we're over here playing it safe. How risky is that? Yeah. So those are just some thoughts, less advice. <laughs> but I do think that reframing can help put you in a mentality where you can take some different action and, and gives you a little bit of courage. Yeah. Absolutely. How safe is the status quo, right? <laughs> oh, well, Sarah, we appreciated having you and your brilliance. Thank you. Thanks so much. The 90th Percentile and Unconventional Leadership Podcast was written and recorded by Brianna Corin, Jack Zanger, and Joe Folkman, and produced by Zanger Folkman. If you are interested in learning more about Zanger Folkman's award-winning 360-degree assessments, leadership, and coaching offerings, or would like to attend our monthly leadership webinar series hosted by Jack and Joe, visit our website at zangerfolkman.com. If you like our podcast, tell your friends and coworkers about it, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave us a great review. We really like to read them. All resources and links to the research referenced in this episode can be found in our episode details or on our podcast page on zangerfolkman.com.